Lord, I pray that as your, your gospel, your good news is proclaimed, Lord, I pray that it would have its effect on us. We know this would not happen apart from the Spirit of God, your Holy Spirit, uh, because we are by nature so wicked that even good news from you we would ignore or treat as vile. So we pray for that miracle to happen right now, that I would be faithful to the text. And that all of our ears would be faithful to hear your text and respond as the sheep of the good shepherd. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61. We're getting closer to finishing this wonderful, wonderful book. Isaiah chapter 61. We'll be reading... And we'll be, I'll be preaching from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 9 this morning. All right, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations. In their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a, you, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion, for they shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Thus far. God's word. Now, a person's first sermon is a very important thing. A preacher's first sermon is a very important thing. It tells, it tells you a lot about them. Um, before I became a pastor, I was given the opportunity to preach at my wife's father's church, and it was probably a bit of a disaster. Uh, I preached somewhere in the book of Hebrews, and all I remember is somebody came coming after me and saying, Something like they appreciate the effort and then challenged me on one of my conclusions. And I was absolutely crushed. Uh, Jordan, Pastor Jordan, who's not here this morning, he's, uh, he's in a foreign land uh, preaching to give relief to one of the pastors there, a foreign land of Kenora, uh, relieving uh, one of our own, Caleb Simons. He's uh, filling the pulpit for uh, dear Caleb Simons, who abandoned us earlier this year. I will want everybody to remember Anyways, he'll, rem he'll remind me uh, very often of my, my first sermon as a pastor, which was preached in Alberta, and thankfully there are no recordings left of it, but it was a sermon on the topic of light, where I just went through and just talked about light and just all the things in Scripture. It was terrible. I don't think that there was any errors in it, but afterward I was given 
kind of a backhanded compliment by one of the, the people who had suffered through, I'm pretty sure it was an hour and 45 minute sermon because I had, was not keeping track of time. Anyway, she said, you know, some people don't like long sermons, but I do. And that was it. <laughs> the text we read this morning was Jesus's, the text of Jesus's first sermon that he ever preached. We see this in the, in the book of Luke, Luke 4. This is his first sermon. He could have picked anywhere in the Old Testament. There's lots, there's lots to have chosen from. Anything. I mean, you have all kinds of, uh, of, of sermons about, all kinds of texts about the Lord uh, smiting his enemies. Jesus had just done miracles in Capernaum before he preached his sermon in his hometown. And he showed the absolute power he had over all creation. He speaks the word and people are healed. Adam's molecules listen to his voice. He has got infinite power. And so you can imagine some people were expecting he'd, he'd preached a sermon they'd all been hoping. He's going to preach the sermon out. He is going to crush all of their enemies. He's going to destroy everyone who is an enemy of God. Anybody who is my enemy, if you are one of those people. And yet he, he, he picked Isaiah chapter 61, a text that announces good news, good news, good news to the poor and the brokenhearted. There would have been a few people who, a lot of people that, that surprised. In fact, you can see if you look at Luke chapter 4, which we, we were, not, we're not going to because we don't need an hour and 45 ser- uh, minute sermon today. But if you looked in the book of Luke, in, uh, in Luke chapter 4, which, uh, which Kevin read for us, you will see that he did not get a good reception to this first sermon. Uh, not only did they give him a backhanded compliment, they tried to throw him off a cliff. They were not pleased with this. This shocked them that this, that this would be the first sermon the Messiah would choose to preach. It was a disappointment. A surprise. But there would be some people who would, not be, who would not be surprised that this would be the first text that he would preach from. Among those people who would not be surprised would be his mom, Mary. Because many years earlier, there was a group of men who were in a field watching their flocks, and in the middle of the night, they heard kind of a sermon preached to them by angels. And what did those angels announce to the shepherd that day? What was their announcement of the birth of this king? Anybody remember what that is? What was the the good news that they preached? Luke 2 verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news. News of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from Uh, From them to heaven, the the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. 
And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And so of all the people who would have been surprised that Jesus picked this as his first sermon text, it would not have been Mary. She knew. Because on Christmas morning, this news was announced to her by shepherds. Surprise, this is an Advent sermon. Well, one of the things we'll notice is that, and if you notice, if you remember what Kevin read in Luke 4, is that Jesus did not preach the entire text. He stopped. He omitted or stopped halfway through verse 2. The spirit of the Lord is, uh, God is upon me, said uh, Jesus preached, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But did not say the, the next phrase, which, and the, which is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, it's not that Jesus was correcting the Old Testament. Because he is the one who will bring the vengeance of God. He will come one day to judge the living and the dead. But the first time he came, he brought good news. The second time he comes, he comes to judge and destroy his enemies. To bring the vengeance of God on his enemies. But the first time he came, he came instead to die for his enemies. To take the vengeance of God for his enemies. We read in this passage the year of the Lord's favor, but also talking about the day of vengeance of our God. Dear friends, I urge you to pay attention to this text today because there will one day be a day of the Lord's wrath. The day of the judgment of Jesus, the day that the Lord Jesus judges the living and the dead. That will certainly come. But today is the day of salvation. Repent. And believe in him. That you would not be destroyed as an enemy of God. Today is the day of salvation. And Christ has come to be the good news. The good news to the poor, the sick, and the brokenhearted. That takes us to our first point, which we're going to find in the first verse. Our first point is this. Truly good news comes only from Jesus. Let's see this in verse 1. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. It is important that Jesus was anointed by God. Did you notice that? In the Old Testament, the kings of Israel, the kings of God's people were anointed by God. God would send a prophet to anoint them, to say that this is a man that God has selected to be the king over God's people. In the same way also, Priests were chosen by God. They were appointed. They were anointed. These are roles that a person couldn't pick for themselves. You couldn't aspire to be the king of God's people. You couldn't aspire to be a priest. This is something that was granted to you. It was God's own choosing. Not something that you could pick for yourself. In fact, the people of of Israel were not even allowed to pick their own king. They weren't allowed to pick their own priests. The point was this, is that's something that only God could provide for his people. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the savior of sinners. The one who would reconcile enemies, reconcile sinners to a holy God. And that position is only something that could be granted. 
And it had to be granted by God. Because we are estranged from God. It is against God that we have sinned. And so it would have to be from God that the Messiah would come. Now you might be wondering, why should I trust Jesus? Maybe you've heard about Jesus. You know, the Christians talk about Jesus. You might know a little bit of the stories that are found in Scripture. And you wonder, why in the world should I trust Jesus? And the answer might have been given to you, or you might uh, have thought this. The answer is that because Jesus said so. But that actually is the wrong answer. In fact, Jesus does not give that answer when he is on earth. He says, do not trust me simply because I have said so, but because God has anointed me. God has chosen me. He has demonstrated this. He said that he has been sent from the Father. He came as an act of submission. Jesus is not the one that the church chose to be her savior. They didn't make him Lord. God made him Lord and Messiah. He was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Prophecies about his lineage, which family he would come from. The location of his birth, the location of his early years, the location of his hometown, all in different locations. All of these things were said ahead of time to prove that he was actually the anointed one of God. The time of his birth in history was was actually predicted by the prophet Daniel. Daniel predicted that the Messiah would be born and inaugurate his kingdom during the reign of the Roman Empire, before the Roman Empire even began. But Jesus' anointing, his public anointing, his visible public anointing, happened on the day of his baptism. On the day of his baptism, Jesus was anointed, you could say, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Let's look in John chapter 1. Look at John chapter 1, verse 29. Let's see this. And we're talking, and this is, this is uh, obviously John talking about John the Baptist. Okay, so this is two different Johns, don't get confused. John the non-Baptist, talking about John the Baptist. John the Apostle, talking about John the Baptist. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, he who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. So this is John the Baptist's testimony. John the Baptist was widely known, universally known in Israel as a prophet of God, the one who speaks God's words on behalf of God. And John the Baptist is here saying, I did not know him. He's saying, I didn't discover this. He wasn't the Messiah that I chose. I wasn't smart enough. I'm not the prophet who gets to pick this guy. God told me that I'd know who he was based on the anointing that would happen. I'd visibly see the spirit of God descend on him. And this is the man, this is the Messiah who will take away the sins of the world. The man that God has chosen, not the one I have chosen, not the one Israel has chosen, not the one that you have chosen. 
And Jesus was further attested by miracles and signs and wonders. He demonstrated on earth in front of human eyewitnesses, proven that he was not a self-appointed Messiah. He was not the Jew-appointed Messiah. He was the Messiah chosen by the Lord God, given to us. And so there's some implications from Jesus being the anointed one. But there is evidence that demands a verdict. You, each of us, will all stand before God one day. And you will have to stand before God. And and while you're thinking about that, you think to yourself, is there more evidence that Christ is the anointed one of God than there is not? Did God show not enough evidence that this was the anointed man, the one who came to save the world, to rescue people who are sinners? That he didn't leave enough evidence in history He didn't turn the world around. That you had not heard enough. Second piece of implication from this is that, dear Christian, you can have confidence in your hope. God attested that Jesus was the Messiah. It is not simply wishful thinking that you know you are guilty and that you just really want somebody to die for your sins. You really know you're going to die and you really want somebody to give you eternal life. This is not just wishful thinking. These are God's own words. This is the man of God's own choosing. The next implication is that you cannot choose to be the Messiah. Now, most people would say, well, obviously I can't choose to be the the Messiah, But, but more likely you have chosen to be your own Messiah the one on whom your own hopes lie. Frequently, I have conversations with people asking them, what will happen if they meet the Lord? And those who who don't outright deny that that will actually happen, those who think, yeah, maybe it will happen, frequently they will say that they are hoping it is good for them because they have been good. They are hoping that it will have been good for them, that the Lord will look at their life and the Lord judging fairly will say, it'll go well for me. Friends, let this passage kill that hope of yours. There is one man whom the Lord has chosen to be Messiah. He is anointed to bring good news to the guilty, to the poor. And do not look for your own Messiah. Do not look to be your own Messiah. Do not think you can pick your own religion. Do not think you even make Jesus Lord. You recognize him as Lord. He is the man of God's own choosing. Jesus was anointed by God to bring good news. He wasn't simply brought to bring a new perspective. He wasn't simply brought to bring new rules, new pathway of salvation, or or to clarify what is the actual pathway, the the actual way to, to save yourself, not new instructions. He didn't even come to bring real clear marching orders. No, he came to bring good news. News. News of things you didn't do. News of of things that somebody else did instead of you. And only Christ is able to bring that good news. He's not only able to deliver, but to produce that good news. And you might be here thinking that you are not in need of such good news. This news might not strike you as wonderful that Christ died for your sins so that you can be reconciled to God. This might not strike you as wonderful. And that actually brings us to our next point. And that is, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. 
Let's look at one to three. We'll back up and then continue a little further. The spirit of the Lord is of God of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I want you to see here that there is good news that is announced, but it is not to everyone. There is a specific group of people that this news is announced. It is only for the poor. Or to use a different, uh, different phrase, it's only for the sick. Or a different phrase from the same passage, only for the captives. Or another phrase, only for those who mourn. All those who are sick or poor. This is the good news. And it is only meant for those who are sick and poor and mourning. And captive. Or worse. People who are dead in their transgressions and sins. Children of wrath. Enemies of God. This is. He says he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Liberty to the captives. Now some of you if you know Old Testament history enough. You would have known that there was a year. The Sabbath of Sabbaths. That in this year. The 49th year. All the captives, all those who were enslaved would be set free. Everyone who had enslaved themselves because they had incurred a debt. Anybody who had enslaved themselves because they had actually committed a crime. Anybody who had squandered their family inheritance and had had to give up their land, their family's inheritance land, had had given it up to somebody else. All of that would be returned. All the captives would be set free. It was called the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. All the captives would be set free. But what was interesting about this year, it was the year of the Lord's favor, but it had, it had lasting consequences. Because if you were a captive, if you were indentured labor because you had incurred a debt or you had sinned against someone, committed a crime, you would be set free in the year of Jubilee. But the year after the year of Jubilee, you would remain free. Jesus is indicating here, and Isaiah before him is indicating that the Messiah is going to do something wonderful. He is going to set free people who are captives. Now, when he says that this is only good news to the sick and the poor and the blind and those who are captive, those who are slaves, he's not indicating that there's another group of people. He's very clear that every single one of us, every single human is born in sin, born dead in their trespasses, born as an enemy of God. Dear friends, you may have heard that every single one of us is a child of God, that every person is one of God's children. That is not true. In fact, the Bible is very clear that we are not all born God's children. The Bible is incredibly clear that we are all born God's enemies, strangers of God. Objects of his wrath. We're all born dead in sin. We are, all born, we are sick, so sick that we are dead. Not only are we born dead in our sin, we are also born enslaved to sin. And it's the worst kind of slavery. The worst kind of slavery, and I think you'll know what I mean when I say this, is the slavery of the heart. Where you, ens- you are enslaved to the things that you want to do. Your heart enslaves you. 
There's no actual prison door there. It is your heart. You want to do these things. You want to sin. You want to be a rebel against God. And so the question is then begged, do you see yourself as sick? So sick that you are dead. Do you see yourself as poor? So poor that you have nothing. Do you see yourself as a captive? A slave, an enemy of God? Do you see this? And is your sin bitter to you? Because Satan sees himself as an enemy of God. Satan sees that he is guilty before God. Satan knows these things are true. And it's not bitter to him. He's fine with it. He's quite comfortable being God's enemy. He does not want to be God's friend. He certainly does not want to be God's obedient child. And so, dear friends, this is the question that this text begs. Because the good news is only for people who see their sin as bitter. So, yes, do you see yourself as a sinner? But does this, is this bitter to you? Do you hate that you are a sinner? Now, what I'm talking about here is not, do you, do you, not merely do you hate the results, but do you hate the sin itself? And so a good analogy here would be some sort of food allergy that you have. It's one thing, it's one thing to love bread, but be gluten intolerant so that you hate the consequences of eating bread, but you love bread. And that would be the kind of thing, the kind of hating sin that Satan has. He loves sin so much. He loves being an enemy of God, but we can rest assured he's not going to love the consequences of that. He's not going to love being condemned to hell. So it might be true that you hate the fact that you are enslaved to certain sins because it's wrecking things up for you. It's wrecked your marriage. It's wrecked your finances. It, it's wrecked your weight. It's wrecked all kinds of things. And look, I hate the fact that I am enslaved to sin for these reasons. But that's not the kind of bitterness that the Lord is looking for or the more kind of grieving and recognition of sin. The kind of bitterness towards sin or the mourning or grieving of sin that would be indicative of the people whom the gospel is for is that they see how glorious and good God is. They see how holy God is. And they cannot bear the thought of sinning against such a holy God. They cannot bear the thought of being an enemy of such a God. Cannot bear the thought of the foolish math that it would, call, that it would take to choose sin over God. What a good God. How can I have sinned against him? Punishment aside, consequences aside, even if there were no consequences, no punishment, I hate that I sinned against him. How good and holy is he? Why would I sin against somebody so good? Dear friends, this is a comfort these good news, the good news of the gospel is comfort, but only to the poor. To those who are brokenhearted over their own sin. Because it's easy to be brokenhearted over another person's sin. I'm really upset about that person's sin. <laughs> it's a different thing to be brokenhearted about your own sin. But this is a comfort for those who see their sin. And they want nothing more than to be reconciled to God. This is comfort to them. Sin is bitter. 
whether you see it or not, sin is bitter, and so Christ is sweet. And what is the good news that he alone is anointed to bring to the poor? Let's look at this, and we'll look at this, and we'll find this in verses 3 to 4, and we'll get this point. The Lord will replace shame with glory for his bride. Let's read 3 and 4. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. One of the things that's lost for those of us who do not speak Hebrew or read Hebrew, I'm one of these people, is that actually that ashes and headdress thing is actually an anagram. Those two words in Hebrew are using the same letters, just rearranged, ashes and a headdress. And so ashes would have been the sign of mourning. If you are in mourning, official mourning, you would, cover, you would get, get rid of your nice clothes or your, even your ordinary clothes. You'd cover yourself in sackcloth and you'd put ashes on your forehead to show that you are grieving over something. And this is an acknowledgement of shame or of failure or of poverty or of, of hopelessness. And there's a couple of different ways that Israel would have recognized this. First of all, she was covered with shame because of the punishment that had come on her from the other nations, the captivity that, that God brought against her from Babylon and also from Assyria. And so there was this ashes, this visible ashes, this visible shame. But here he's speaking specifically about the ashes of those who realize, realize that they have sinned against a holy God. That shame that you recognize when you see your sin. As David says, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. And those ashes of recognizing your guilt, recognizing your bankruptcy, recognizing your slavery, recognizing your enemy status before God is going to be replaced with a headdress. Now, the headdress would have been a token of a wealthy groom's love and affection for his bride. So depending on how glorious that, uh, that groom, depending on how glorious and wealthy and how honorable he and his family are, is, that's going to affect the headdress that this wife is going to be wearing. It's a token of a wealthy groom's love and affection for his bride. And Zion has so much shame. The people of God have so much shame. They have guilt and rebellion. And that doesn't separate the Zion, the bride of Christ, that doesn't separate us from the rest of the world. So, so far, we're the same. We have the same amount of sin, the same amount of guilt, the same amount of shame and ashes, you could say. But the one anointed to bring good news to the, to the, to the poor, to the bride, is that he bore her sin and shame to replace it with glory, his glory, instead of Instead of shame, he replaces it with his glory. The cross was the moment that that shame was placed on Jesus Christ. This is why the cross is the symbol of Christianity. Because the cross was the place in which Jesus took our shame and our guilt. Not merely the shame of other people, of of what we look like to other people, but specifically the shame of what we look like to God. Our sin and our guilt. And he covers his wife's shameful ashes 
with his royal robes. Instead of these, he clothes us with garments of, of uh, not of garments of mourning, but of garments of, garments of praise. He gives us oil of joy. Not only has our official position changed, not only do we stand before God now based on Christ's righteousness with his record, but he also gives us joy that we are satisfied in him. We get to be delighted in him even now in this life. He says that we will be called oaks of righteousness. First, we have Christ's righteousness. That's our record. That's how we stand before God, Christ's own righteousness, the things he did. But then he also gives us joy and he also works righteousness in us. And it doesn't mean that the joy that we have is not that we don't grieve or we don't mourn. Even for the Christians here today, it's a very good chance that you had things that happened to you in this year that have caused you to grieve or mourn. Even greater chance that that has happened before in your life. And a sure chance that this will happen in the coming years. So the promise is not that we don't grieve at all. Not that we do not mourn at all, but that we mourn and grieve. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve with him being with us, our comforter. We know that these things do not separate us from God's love. And also we have the hope that one day we will live in a world that is perfectly, perfectly suited, perfectly suited for the righteousness of Christ. He replaces our shame with his glory because he took our shame. He didn't just set it aside and say, we're just going to ignore that. He bore our shame, our ashes, you could say, our sickness, our death on the cross. That is sort of an internal joy, an internal glory. But there's an external glory as well that belongs to the bride. She will be recognized by other people. And there will be sort of an external glory that will be given to her. And that brings us to our fourth point. People from all nations will serve and be served by the church if they, are know, if they are to know the Lord. Let's see this in five to seven. Strangers shall, shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of, God, of the Lord. And they shall, they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations. And in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Now there is a current glory for the church. For anyone to know the Lord, they are joined to Christ's bride. There is no salvation apart from Christ. And if you belong to Christ, if you're saved by Christ, you're part of the church. You're part of Zion. So there's no sense in saying, I love Christ, but not the church. This doesn't make sense if you understand what salvation is. To belong to Christ means that you're added to his body. You're added to his bride. You're added to the church. You're added to Zion. Now, the Roman Catholic view of this is, is that to join the Pope's church means that you get saved. To join his church saves you. This is not the biblical view. The biblical view is, is the reverse of this. To be saved by Christ 
comes with the honor and responsibility of belonging to the church, of becoming part of the church. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, the eye cannot say it will not serve the hand. And the eye cannot say it doesn't need the hand. Though Isaiah has been promising salvation to the Gentiles, to the nations, the privilege of Zion is that they will need to come in order to be saved, they will need to come to Israel's God. They will need to come to Israel's Messiah. They will have to come and be saved by an Israelite. To the Israelite prophets and apostles. To the Israelite Bible. The New Testament and Old Testament. To the church that was founded in Jerusalem. The only way to be saved is to become part of Zion. There's no other religion that works. The only way to be belong to God is to belong to the bride of Christ. Now, the world might despise the church in Christianity. And maybe they even think that they love God or the creator or the higher power. They might think that they're religious or spiritual. But it is only through agreeing with the gospel given to Zion, only through agreeing with the gospel given to the church, only accepting the savior of the church can they belong to God. All else is idolatry and it is shame that will not be covered. You must be joined to Zion's head, to the head of the body, the head of the church, to Christ. And in so doing, if your faith is in Christ, you will be joined to the bride of Christ. Now what does this give us for implications? What is the present glory then that belongs to the church, the bride, the headdress that she currently wears? First of all, the honor and glory in this life given to the church is that she will be the one who carries the gospel. She will be the one who carries salvation to the nations. It is her privilege to be the one that you need to hear the gospel from in order to be saved. We see this in Romans chapter 10. How can they hear how can they be saved if they've never heard the gospel? And how can they hear the gospel if no one is preaching it to them? And how can that person preach unless they are sent? This is a huge privilege and responsibility. It is a wonderful, a wonderful motivation for evangelism and for missions. And so, dear church, assume the providence of God in all of your placements. Assume that God has chosen where you live, the family you're part of, where you work. All of these things, assume that he has chosen all of these things to let more people know, more people that Christ died for, to know and hear the gospel. Assume that you are an important messenger to bring that news. This is the privilege and honor, the current glory of the church. That yes, the gospel comes from Christ and Christ alone. The church saves no one. But the glory he has bestowed on his bride, the church, is that people will be saved from hearing it from her. And the second implication of this, dear church, is serve the church. Serve the church. Treat her as precious. Rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve with those who grieve serve the church as if she is the body of Christ, as if she is the bride of Christ, because she is. Pray for one another. Build one another up in 
in love. Speak the truth in love to one another. Encourage and warn and comfort those who are in Christ. And commit to assembling as the temple of God each Lord's day. We have this glory now. Though it is mixed with the experience of shame. How do we know that the Lord is going to be faithful to remove all the shame of the church? To remove all of the shame and the feelings of shame and all the suffering and grieving and mourning. How do we know that the Lord will be faithful to remove all the shame of the church and replace it with glory? How do we know that? I'm glad you asked. That brings us to our last point. We know this is true because the Lord does not repay good with evil. Let's see this in verses 7 to 9. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion, for they shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I want to point out a couple of things. In our hermeneutics lessons in Sunday school, which is the study of the study of Scripture, one of the things that we were noting is that you can tell something, you have to pay close attention to the tenses and the forms that you're finding in there. I want you to see that there is a switch from they to your and your to they. So at first when Isaiah is talking, he's saying your and he's speaking of Zion, like the, the Jewish people, people who have Israelite or Jewish descendants or descendants, uh, ancestors, okay? And then he's speaking of the, the Gentiles, those who get saved. He speaks of them as they. And then he, he talks about you shall have your double portion in Lot, that there's an inheritance for Zion. And here he's talking about their offspring. Again, the word he uses for the Gentiles, the nations, the non-Jewish people. Their offspring shall be known among the nations. Their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them. They are an offspring the Lord has blessed. And the point here is this. When the Messiah comes, we've already seen this over and over again. The people of Zion, the citizens of Zion, the children of Zion are not simply those who have Jewish, a Jewish genealogy. In fact, it's not even all of them. It's only those who trust in Christ. But it's also not restricted to them. It's anyone from the nations who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is here called a descendant? Is here called an heir? Talking about an everlasting covenant. Their offspring the Lord has blessed. Now, did you see the word double there? Did you see the word double? In verse 7. You see it twice. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Then it says, therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. What in the world is he talking about a double portion for? Now, if you remember in Isaiah 40, a long time ago, some of the most beautiful words that have ever been spoken in scripture, Isaiah 41 to 2. I'm just going to remind you of those and see if you can pick out that word double again. It's Isaiah 41 to 2. You're familiar with these words probably. Comfort, comfort my people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem or Zion or the church and cry to her. 
that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Now, does that mean that God gives twice the punishment that Israel deserves? No, that's not what it means. We saw when we were in Isaiah 40 that that word double actually means twin. It's the exact double. If you fold something over, it's the exact double. Exactly what is due. If you think about weights and measures in the, in the marketplace, it is the exact weight or the exact measure. So that if you got this, you'd not say, hey, I didn't get what I paid for. Or there was something lacking. It is the exact, exact measure. There's no complaining that you didn't get exactly what was due for you. And we see that the reason that we can be comforted is not that God has given us exactly the punishment we deserve for our sin because, dear friends, that would take an eternity in hell. No, we can be comforted because the Lord God, the Lord Jesus, received the exact match of what our sins deserved. Jesus received the exact double of the punishment we deserve for our sin. And now do you see there's a reverse here. The church will receive the exact match of Christ's glory. The church will receive the exact match of Christ's glory. Now, years ago, there was a a rule of thumb, some math that was produced, probably by the diamond industry, and there was a math on how much of your salary you're supposed to spend on an engagement ring. Who Who can tell me what the rule of thumb was? Three months salary is the rule of thumb for how much you're supposed to spend on your uh, fiance's engagement ring. Now, let's think about this. We see that Zion is getting a headdress, right? Symbolically, it's the glory of Christ is given to her. He takes exactly all her shame. She gets exactly all of his glory. She doesn't get three months salary worth of his glory. How much of his salary worth of glory does she get? 100% percent, he gets, she gets all of his glory. She gets all of the glory that he deserves. She shares in everything that he deserves. And so why can she be so sure that her shame will be replaced with glory, glory that she will never get to the end of receiving, never will be ended saying, okay, I guess that's enough. Why can she be so sure that God will give her glory upon glory upon glory and will replace all of her shame in the new life? Glory that's not mixed with shame as it is now. That's not mixed with grieving. Why can she be so sure? Because God is just. Did you see this? Because he hates injustice. He hates false weights and measures. He hates it when people get shortchanged. One thing you can be sure, the Lord is very clear. He does not, he does not, he does not give, he does not repay wickedness. Uh, he does not pay, repay goodness with wickedness, right? He, he does not repay evil for good. He doesn't do that. And if our hope is supposed to be the exact match, the exact double of what Christ our groom deserves, then we can be sure that God will give it to us. 
So dear church, your hope is in an everlasting life based on what Christ deserves. How long will it take to exhaust the glories of what your groom deserves? How long would that take before the angels and everybody else would say, well, I guess that's enough. He's totally been repaid for how wonderful and glorious he is. How long? Would it be a thousand years in heaven? Okay, we've exhausted all of his glory. Will it be 10,000 years? Will it be a million years? Will it be a million, a million times, a million times, a million times, a million? Dear friends, the answer is obvious. It will be an infinite amount of years. It will be an infinite amount of years because God is just. He paid Christ the exact double for what we deserve for our sin. So we will get the exact double for what Christ deserves for his glorious life. Now, what are the implications of this? The implications of this is that it is never a bad deal to trade whatever you could gain in this life as being an enemy of God. Any pleasure you would have, I'm just be my own savior, my own boss, my own God. Or all the things you might suffer for belonging to Christ. He is just. He will not make you regret that in eternal life. In Matthew 19, verse 29, we see an application of this. For everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But for many who are first will be last and the last first. It's not specifically talking about a reward he's speaking here, but the promise is that you will not be left thinking that it was an unfair deal, that it was a losing relationship, that you lost more than you'd gained. You'd rather have gotten what you deserved rather than what Christ deserves. This means that sometimes you will suffer for being a Christian. You will. But the glory of being the bride of Christ far outweighs, in fact, you wouldn't be able to balance them on us. You wouldn't even be able to, it wouldn't even work to do that. Paul says that the glory far surpasses these sufferings that we have now. So this means for suffering for Christ. It also means for obedience. For some of us, that slavery to sin that comes so naturally to us, it persists even in the life of a Christian after they have been saved. They, there's this indwelling sin remains and we continue to fight and struggle for it struggle with sin, struggle for holiness. And the lie that is told to you is that there will be more pleasure. There'll be more to gain by rebelling against God than by being holy. Do not believe that lie. God is just. He will not make you regret choosing obedience rather than sin, even if sin promises you a certain pleasure now. When you get to eternal life, when you get to the new heavens and earth, you will not say, you know what? It would have been better. You know, all, in the grand scheme of things, I would have had more joy. By the way, all the joy in that than in my life on earth and my eternal life, I would have had more if I would have walked as an enemy of God. Your friends, this is also true when we are called to do difficult things. When we are called to be gracious and kind and forgiving to those who have sinned against us. 
and might feel like it is ripping against the fabric of your very being, that it is so hard, it's not you. But dear friends, this promise is also for you. He will not make you regret doing that, even if it feels incredibly painful. He will not make you regret that, because he is a just God. He hates injustice. And the glory that is reserved for the church is not three months of Christ's salary, but 100% of everything that he has earned. And so you are no fool for abandoning your identity, the identity you're born with, and embracing the identity as belonging to Christ, being grafted into his body. And close with these words, only Christ is anointed to bring this good news. There's good news that comes from nowhere else. And this good news is only to those who recognize that they are poor, that they are captives, that they are dead in sin, that they are bankrupt, that they have nothing to offer God and they stand before God guilty. And not only that, that they realize that they don't want this. They don't want to be guilty before God. They don't want to be God's enemies. They want to be his children. And this is sure good news. This is eternal comfort and this is eternal joy. Because God is merciful to those who are in Christ Jesus. He didn't just overlook our sin. He actually punished our sin in Christ. So that's why he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness when we confess it. Dear church, your Savior has come. Those are not part of the church of Christ who have not repented and believed in the gospel of Christ. God is just, and he will give you exactly what is due for your sin. So don't be a fool. Run to Christ now. Embrace what he accomplished at his first coming so that you will not be crushed by what he comes to accomplish with his second coming. Dear church, your Savior has come. He was anointed. You didn't choose him, which is good. He was chosen by God to proclaim good news. Good news for you. Sometimes we think of this as extra rules or extra burdens or to make me um, more acceptable in, in my actions. No, he has come to bring good news of what he has done. Your hope is not in what you can accomplish or have accomplished, but the headdress that was purchased for you by Christ. And it did not take three months' salary. It took his very life. And what would the Father be prepared to reward him with nothing short of eternal glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ came not first to destroy his enemies for then all of us would have no hope because we know that's what we naturally are. We thank you that he first came to bring good news to the poor by actually taking their shame and being crushed for it so that we can enjoy a reward that belongs to him. Father, I pray that you would open up blind eyes, soften hard hearts, that we would all here recognizing, recognize our poverty before you, our deadness in sin, the wretchedness of our sin, and how, and Lord, that we would grieve over that sin, that we would run to Christ and be saved. Father, for those whose faith is in Christ, Lord, I pray you'd remind us of what awaits us, so that we would not be tempted to go back to the old life, the old identity, and think that we need somehow to squeeze more joy out of life by disobeying you. Lord, let us not be so foolish. 
Let us consider how glorious and worthy Christ is and look forward to your justice when you give him and his bride exactly, not one ounce less, exactly what he deserves. Father, I pray you do this in Jesus' name.